Frederick Julius's Lonely Boy is a 10-episode fictional coming-of-age audio drama. Start with episode one and listen in sequence. If you love it, hit subscribe, follow Frederick Julius on Facebook, or join our email list for exclusive content, free tracks, and episode announcements. Happy listening! Sick Picnic Media presents Frederick Julius's Lonely Boy, a novella in sound and color. Written and narrated by Matt Geiler. Episode 10, Turning a Corner. The sun was just emerging over the roof of the barn, and most of the farm was still asleep in a blanket of dark gray violet when I came downstairs to pour myself a bowl of cereal before getting dressed for school. My mother was sitting at the kitchen table. She was still in her nightgown and had turned her chair toward the glass pane by the front door, out of which she was staring while her coffee sat untouched, losing its steam in front of her. Your dad left, she whispered, saying it as much to herself or the window as to me. Somehow I knew what she meant. Like he's moving out, right? I confirmed. She turned her head to me and nodded. I could tell she had been crying. Her eyes were encircled by soft, puffy patches of purple and pink. He's not going to be living with us anymore. I nodded back. I'm sorry about everything that's happened, Mom. When I said this, what was left of her composure collapsed, and she pitched forward, burying her face in both hands and giving in to a new wave of grief that rolled in just as it was getting lighter outside. I ran over to hug her. I wanted it to work. I didn't want for any of this to happen, she wailed. I know, Mom. It's going to be okay. After a few minutes, she straightened back up. I tried to get him to wait until you and Patrick were up so he could tell you himself, she breathed. But... She trailed off, shaking her head and looking back out the window. I had felt our family was going to end for a while, but I thought it would feel like a bigger deal when it officially did. I thought I would be crying, too. I thought I would at least be awake when it happened. All I felt as I stood there watching the dawn disappear was an uneasy but welcome sense of relief. Is Patrick still asleep? She asked, beginning to gather herself for the day. Yeah, he's still in bed. My mother rose up to go wake him. We had to be at school in less than an hour. Hey, Mom, I called after her, arresting her at the foot of the ladder before she climbed up. I'm glad. Now he can't hurt you anymore. She shook her head as more tears came and she flopped her arms helplessly against her thighs. This is all backwards, she cried. Children aren't supposed to be glad when their father walks out. And they're not supposed to walk out at all. Even torn apart by a terrible storm, 
my mother told the truth. I'm not sure why, but I had a feeling Lisa would be at my locker when I got to school. There was no reason for this other than that general sense you develop as a child for the natural rhythm of things that disappears when you get older and learn to keep track of time. An unbounded sense of being that allows you to just fall into and out of things, people, places, and events with a definite starting and ending times that mean next to nothing when you're young because you don't yet believe in things you can't feel. Before that staged metamorphosis, we are still sense and instinct like any other animal, and even the slightest conspiracy of wind and light to change the temperature can cause you to feel that it's about time for something to happen. That's the feeling I had as I walked down the stairs and saw Lisa leaning up against the locker next to mine. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Freddy. Her eyes were misty and her lashes were wet. Her arms were wrapped tightly around her green trapper keeper and she was swaying nervously from side to side. Is everything okay? I asked, taking my backpack off. She looked at me for three or four seconds before her eyes were completely full and she turned her head up and away, causing their contents to run slowly down her cheeks. She lingered in this position for three or four more seconds and then returned her freckled gaze to me in a fluid finishing stroke of brushing away her tears with the cuff of her oversized sweatshirt that hid most of her left hand. Are you all right? Lisa looked down at the floor quickly and then back up at me. Um, she started. I noticed she was vibrating even more than normal. What is it? Um, Jill doesn't want to go with you anymore. I started nodding my head in agreement even before I felt the words in my chest, which happened a few seconds later. Lisa's tears started up again. She's not mad or anything, Lisa explained, her sweatshirt cuff becoming wetter and darker the more she wiped her eyes. She just thinks it's time to move on. I continued nodding while I experienced the odd sensation of my stomach turning and settling all at once. I understand. And the funny thing was that I did understand. I didn't feel angry or hurt or any of the red, itchy embarrassment I always carried with me just under my skin and that waited for moments just like this to surface and overwhelm me. When Lisa said the words move on, I pictured Jill in a 1920s British train station at the end of a long platform framed in iron and bathed in soft white gauze from the skylight, standing in the steam while sharply uniformed porters loaded her trunks into a baggage car, waiting to depart into a hazy dawn for an unknown destination. I could almost believe it was happening right then as Lisa and I looked at each other just like that. You do? Lisa asked, brightening a bit. Yeah, I smiled. I do. I thought you'd be angry or upset or something. I know, I puzzled, wondering why I wasn't. 
but I'm not. I don't know why. I just feel like everything's going to be okay. Lisa shook her head almost imperceptibly back and forth, causing a fresh trickle of tears to trace the left side of her face. A bittersweet smile. Soft chimes. Are you okay? She looked up and away again. It's just that Jill always does this. What? She always... As soon as she started to explain, Lisa caught herself and lowered her head a bit, running her left hand through her wild hair followed by her right, pulling several locks behind her ears so that when she raised up to look at me again, a single savage spiral hung down around her right eye, almost holding her dewy freckles on its tip. You're a great guy. She was collected now, and as cool as the first time she'd appeared at my locker. Jill wanted you to have this, but, um, you're not supposed to open it until after school. She extended a small rectangle wrapped in newspaper. There was a note taped to the top with my name written on it. It had been folded over and over into a tiny triangle. <laughs> That's cool that she sent a breakup gift, I quipped. That's really thoughtful. Both of us laughed, even though this was supposed to be difficult and sad. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. We stood there for just a few beats more, neither of us nervous, neither of us saying anything. I gotta get to class, Lisa breathed abruptly, starting to vibrate again. Totally, I agreed, resuming my nodding. I looked back down at Jill's gift and felt a small rush of air and electric current as Lisa leaned forward and quickly kissed me on the cheek. She was running away down the hall when I raised my head back up. Hey, will you tell Jill something for me? I called after her. She stopped and turned around, flanked on either side by streams of students hurrying past. Tell her that I had a really good time and tell her thank you. A slow, affirmative duck of her head, and then Lisa disappeared into the teenage tide. As soon as she was gone, I decided I would be late to class. I didn't see how I was going to wait until school was out to open the gift and read the note, so I just stood there waiting until the hall had emptied and the bell had rung. On a normal day, I would have been afraid of a teacher yelling at me to get to class, but on this day I felt smooth and strong inside, and like I was floating above everything, powerful and beyond reproach. I had such little care about getting caught that I actually sat down on the floor with my back against my locker and crossed my legs. I opened the note and read it. Dear Freddie, if you're reading this, then Lisa's already told you. I'm sorry. You didn't do anything. There's a lot going on right now, and I just need some time to myself. But still say hi to me in English class, okay? And keep making us all laugh. Love, Jill. P.S. I got this for you at the mall because you said your other one was wearing out. The guy at the music store was a total jerk. I hope it's the right one. 
I could tell from the flashes of orange type against a brownish-green field it was a cassette of the Beach Boys today before I'd even unwrapped it. As I finished removing the rest of the newspaper, I imagined that I was standing at the other end of the platform in a wool jacket, trousers, and brogues with a trilby hat tilted slightly to the side, looking up from the note and the tape in time to see that Jill's train had left the station, vanishing behind vaporous ribbons of mist. It made sense to me that Jill was off on another adventure, because in that moment I understood that's what I had been. The latest unexpected undertaking in her young life of fearless exploits. Her indomitable path had by chance crossed mine, and she had stopped long enough to marry them together for a few faultless minutes. How many people ever feel found like that, even for a second? At lunch, all of the girls were in their usual spot, away from the toiling masses at the end of the table nearest the cafeteria windows, a public conclave of illuminated bon vivants. I sat by myself in the opposite corner watching them, and not eating, and thinking that if I was a filmmaker, this image of them is how a movie might end. Christy and Joe Neal crashing into each other and laughing. Angie deep inside her notebook, hidden by her hair. Lisa rearranging hers with each impatient swivel of her head, pulsing and looking around for what's next. And Jill anchoring them all in an unyielding pageant of light without ever looking up. The kind of final shot that starts medium wide and pulls out beneath a bed of melancholy music, tinkling piano a rushing symbol, fixing their positions in the frame for all time so that no matter how far away you get, no matter how many years go by, they never quite leave your eyes. How long do we need to be at this thing? My dad seemed distant and agitated as we raced northward on 72nd Street through the middle of Omaha in his pickup truck, a burgundy 1986 Ford F-150 that he usually cruised slowly around in from one construction site to another, but which he was currently handling like a Formula One race car, weaving in and out of the lazy Saturday morning traffic with no discernible decrease in speed. I don't really think there's a set time, I mumbled looking out the passenger side window at the buildings blurring into a gray and brown tapestry of depressing haze. I think you just go and look at the artwork for as long as you want. Well, how long do you want to look around? I don't care, I lied. Okay? He exhaled, annoyed, and shook his head. Patrick and I were squeezed to one side of the truck's regular cab seat, leaving about a foot between us and my dad in which he could operate the long metal stick gear shift. I'm happy to just keep driving around until we figure it out. As little as I was saying, Patrick was completely silent. He just sat looking straight ahead with his hands folded in his lap. I wondered what he was thinking. I had thought there would be a quiet season of settling down after my father moved out 
maybe a few weeks where he faded into the background while Patrick and my mom and I caught our breath. But the day after he left, he called my mom and asked if Patrick and I could spend the weekend with him, and she had acquiesced. I didn't want to do this, and I got the feeling nobody else liked this plan either, but I suspected we were all just too sad and tired and exhausted to put up much of a fight. Compounding my dread was the fact that when he showed up at the farm on Friday night to pick us up, he told my mom not to worry about taking me to the Scholastic Art Show the next day. I think you should take it easy and get some rest, he had told her as he folded the last of his clothes over his arm, striding over to the front door and taking a last look around. You look really tired. The tone of my dad's voice when he had said this resided somewhere in the nebulous space between comforting reassurance and a cold, calculated command. It gave me a weird feeling. The unease you experience when someone unpracticed tries to be soothing and just ends up sounding suspicious, almost sinister. At any rate, I thought it was a pretty mean thing to say given the events of the last couple of weeks. But I didn't say anything. I will, my mom said, looking down and to her right. There was an indescribably long silence as the four of us all stood there, unable to add any words to the gaping chasm that had grown up between us. So, my dad broke in, I'll shoot to have these guys back by Sunday night? This was the first of many times he would refer to Patrick and me as these guys when talking to my mom right in front of us. That's fine, she said. All right, well, let's load them up. My dad sounded downright cheery as he headed out to the truck. This struck me as particularly twisted since I felt like a total traitor following him down the walk. I got halfway before I turned back towards the house. My mother was standing on the deck with her arms wrapped around the middle of her body like she was cold or had a stomach ache, maybe both at the same time. I stared right at her, desperately wanting her to tell me I didn't have to go. It's okay, Freddy, she smiled. Have a good time, okay? Okay, I smiled back, already certain that whatever the weekend held in store wasn't going to be anything close to good. It felt like one of those moments where there should be a lot of tears, but both our eyes were bone dry as we exchanged almost secret waves goodbye. Maybe we were all cried out. As my dad backed away from the house and turned his truck down our long gravel driveway, I tried to keep my eyes fixed on my mom. I pressed my nose to the window and held my head still, adjusting my gaze so she remained in view. I did this until we were almost at the end of the drive and my neck started to hurt and I finally had to turn away. I knew we'd only be gone 48 hours, but it felt like we were leaving for good. I said, what do you want to do, Freddy? I had heard my dad the first time he asked this, but had willfully ignored it, keeping my forehead on the window and my eyes on the passing buildings. I just want to find the painting and then leave, I shot back tersely, moving nothing but my mouth. Can't we turn the radio on or something? Sure. 
The next minute or so was filled with the pablum of one of my dad's AM talk radio stations, which he knew for a fact I hated more than anything. I was sure he left the dial on that station just to make me mad, and it 100% worked. Even though I betrayed no outward signs of anger, my insides were constricting into a tightly coiled ball of bright red rage. Well, maybe we take a look for a half hour or so and then head back to the corner, my dad finally decided, spitefully switching the radio back off. I've got a lot of work to do. The corner was two and a half acres of undeveloped land in southwest Omaha that had been in my dad's family since before the Second World War. It was my great-grandfather's farm before the city had expanded that far and grown up around it. But it had never been sold, and so the entire arboretum remained untouched even as it had been enclosed by the advance of streets and concrete. Because it was on a hill, it was almost invisible from the sidewalk. The southeastern boundary was ringed by a sheer drop-off that was probably 20 feet from top to bottom, crowned by an impenetrable bulwark of pines and spruce a secret stronghold right next to a bustling intersection that no one suspected was spreading out behind the super tune and lube. I used to love playing there when I was little. Most of the corner was a vast, verdant plateau with enormous oak and catalpa trees, the hard, elongated pod fruits of which made perfect swords. You could run and climb and be noisy without the least fear of disrupting anything. And even though it was mostly flat, it possessed enough natural rolls and trenches to inspire significant military maneuvers and host spectacular skirmishes between my brother and I and the German divisions that were always lurking near the edge of the cliff. From that edge, you could see the rest of Omaha unfold indefinitely into the distance. Standing there as a child, the view reminded me of pictures I'd seen of Central Park in New York and its lush, unbroken stillness side by side with the restless, toiling city. The corner was fertile with a sense that you had stepped out of one time and into another, the peculiar magic of a place with a peculiar history. There was a house on the property that my great-uncle Norm had built in 1952, a quaint two-bedroom cottage with the living area upstairs above a garage and office downstairs. He had conceived of and built this enchanting post-war bungalow as a wedding gift for his wife, who never showed up for their wedding. Heartbroken but proud and forever silent on the matter, Norm simply moved into the house and lived there alone for the next 40 years, growing older and thinner each night as he slept in his vault built on an empty promise. This was the house my dad lived in now. This is where Patrick and I would sleep now on the weekends. As we continued tearing northward to the art show, I couldn't escape the feeling that these visits would probably always be haunted, either by the sad past of the place itself, or the picture of my mother waving from the deck at the real farm which I couldn't get out of my head. When we arrived at the College of St. Mary, I immediately saw a series of blue and gold signs directing incoming traffic to the exhibition. I had never been on a college campus before. The main entrance and drive were manicured and orderly, 
with rows of daffodils and liriope framing a large, clean stone sign into which the school's name was venerably chiseled. Pristine, pale white buildings rose skyward as we wound slowly downhill to the gallery, citadels of knowledge and learning spiring up into an overcast canvas. The wide walkways were peppered with people hurrying in the same direction, staccato strokes of brown and black and navy creating an even rhythm against all of the ivory, full-bellied upright bass descending with my dad's truck. As morose as I had been most of the morning, seeing the buildings and all the people shifted the energy a bit, and by the time we parked, my back was covered in sunny, tingling static electricity, and I was starting to care again. This must be the spot, my dad announced as we landed at the top of the steps in front of a concrete building with a sleek, modern entrance, several glass doors wide. Huge embossed Trajan letters above the overhang read Hilmer Art Gallery. Above them was a bank of seven stained glass windows, each one filled with educational iconography and its own hue of blue-violet panes, creating a vibrant strip of heliotrope that popped against the colorlessness of the facade. A giant fabric banner in the same colors as the direction signs that led us there said, Welcome National Scholastic Art Show. I could feel my face begin to warm and loosen. It made me feel good that this was an actual place out in the world, and that my painting was hanging somewhere inside it. This place is an architectural mishmash, my dad declared as we walked in, turning the heads of several other attendees. I grimaced at this dismissive dig, but let it go just as quickly. I didn't have time for my dad's grandstanding. In the few seconds it had taken for us to get through the doors, I had come back to life and was hungry. I just wanted to find my painting and confirm for myself that I had really painted it and that the people passing through could see it and this cathedral where it hung wasn't a dream. Would you like a program? A pleasant woman in a gray wool pencil skirt whose blouse and hair were the same shade of white extended a light yellow booklet to me, momentarily halting my charge. Do you have a piece in the show? She asked sweetly. Yeah, I answered. I have a watercolor painting. Wonderful, she smiled. All of the watercolors are going to be right down that hall and around the corner to the left in the atrium room. Just look for the sign. I handed the program to Patrick and launched off in the direction the woman had told us. I couldn't run because there were too many people moving too slowly or stopped to look at different displays in the hallway, but I darted through them as quickly as I could, leaving Patrick and my dad behind as I disappeared into my own private plunge. The deeper into the crowded alley I got, the more everything seemed to narrow in on me. I could feel my heart thudding against my chest so loud and full I assumed it was broadcasting at a volume where everybody around me could hear it. I kept twisting and leaning through the spaces between bodies, winding and winding harder and faster and feeling more and more like the people around me were a tangled gray conspiratorial cobweb straining its selfish fibers to keep me in place or suck me backward all the way out of the building. 
It seemed like every time I cleared a sport coat or a repulsive pair of slacks, a new jacket or drab dress would replace it in my field of vision, choking my progress and preventing me from stepping out into the light. And then, just like a brief, abrupt rest where all the instruments drop out before a key change, I was there. There was hardly anybody in the atrium room, a smooth square chamber with the same marble on its walls as on its floor, canopied by a voluminous rectangular skylight that was most of the ceiling. Soft white natural diffused light bathed the room and the 40 or so watercolors hanging in it. The quiet calm of the space settled my breath and lowered my shoulders. Soft, gentle piano chords as I slowly began to walk through, parsing the paintings for a glimpse of my own. The more I looked at the work of other students, the more I was drawn out of myself, each encounter with strange new talents slowing me as much as the dark mess in the hallway had, but with an opposite effect. Instead of feeling caved in, I felt high and wide, open to the idea that there was an unknowable and inviting vastness that begins at our fingertips and continues on out into eternity. I would likely never meet or speak with any of the people whose spirits I was absorbing, but I could know a part of them all by just walking around this room. I finally came to my painting at the very end of the wall on the right. My breath stopped. Affixed to the mat about halfway up the left side, right next to the rose, was a gigantic blue ribbon, probably a foot long. The button in the center of the circular pleated rosette had a gold foil artist's palette and brush printed on it. There were two sizable streamers flowing downward. The left one said College of St. Mary. The right one said Scholastic Art Award 1987. Just beneath the ribbon, hanging from a small pushpin, was a gold key charm on a light blue thread. My breath returned in a heavy warm rush accented by earthy strings and a cascade of light percussion twinkling just behind my ears. The rose in the cherry Coke can was going to New York. Oh, it's that thing. My dad's voice brought me out of my private vortex of sound and emotion, and I turned around quickly to see that he and Patrick were standing a few feet behind me. Hey, you won! Patrick exclaimed. Dad, Freddy's painting got the blue ribbon. He won! Hey, blue ribbon, huh? Okay! My dad stepped up next to me, finally looking at the image I had conjured months ago to try and get him to see me. Didn't you show this to me a while ago? I don't think so, I lied. I painted it in art class at school. I feel like I've seen it before. My breath caught in my throat again, and my eyes filled as the same redness that infused the painting crept over my scalp and threatened my face, hot and itchy. My dad stood scanning the painting with his cheeks sucked in slightly, nodding slowly with his hands on his hips and his towering frame tilted slightly sideways. Really good shadows, he commented, his head still moving up and down.
For just the split second after that, it seemed like maybe my painting might bring him back after all. Perspective's a little flat, though, he chuckled. What do you mean? The windowsill, he pointed. It's at a little different angle than the wall in the can. It makes it look a little flat. What are you talking about? I could feel the tears flooding down my face as I shook my head in disbelief. It's not bad, my dad backtracked, unaware of what was happening to me. It's just if you look really close, you can tell it's off. I think it looks really good, Freddy, Patrick whispered. Do you have any idea how many times I've painted this? I pleaded through the wetness, feeling like I was going to suffocate. My dad finally turned toward me to take in the shuddering spectacle of me trying not to cry in shame and embarrassment in front of my prize-winning painting. Look, it's not a personal thing, it's just an observation. I mean, you're one of the winners. I couldn't even understand what he meant. I just stood there shaking, trying to hold all of my pieces in place. My face was burning, and now I felt like I was hanging on the wall on display. I thought I might bump into you here. There was a light tap on my left shoulder. Congratulations. The surprise of Mr. Lauderdale suddenly standing right there by my public disintegration startled me, and I quickly tried to wipe my face back to neutral using almost the whole sleeve of my jacket. Thanks, I half-coughed, sniffling. We just got here and saw. Yeah. Me too, Lauderdale said, patting me on the back. I'm Albert Lauderdale, Freddie's art teacher, he introduced himself, extending his right hand toward my father. Oh, great, my dad countered, gathering up his full height. Nice to meet you. The handshake was solid and robust, the kind you see in period films where titans of industry close a lucrative business deal in an office dressed in leather and wood and wreathed in cigar smoke. Before it had ended, I noticed that Mr. Lauderdale and my dad were about the same size. You must be very proud, Lauderdale smiled, pulling back. Not many kids get to have their painting hang in the national show. Freddie's a very gifted artist. Yeah, yeah, he's coming along, my father said, suddenly becoming his own weird version of affable and down-to-earth. You know, he's been drawing since he was two. Wow, Lauderdale laughed. Long time. Yeah, my dad continued. The very first thing he drew was a coffee mug and a mouthful of teeth, and they weren't scribbles. They were like actual finished drawings. First thing he ever did. It was like... Perfect. Lauderdale turned his attention down to me. How do you feel? Looks like your work will be on display in New York for a few weeks. Yeah, it's pretty cool, I mumbled. It's very cool. So the Blue Ribbons go to Nationals? My dad broke in, suddenly interested in my art career after almost a lifetime of indifference. No, the Blue Ribbons are regional commendations. To go to Nationals, they need to give you one of these. He reached across my painting and lifted the gold key from its pin. They only give out two of these, for the whole show, for everything, 7th grade through 12th. 
It's a really special honor. Oh, wow. My dad nodded again. So how many pieces are in the national show? Out of the thousands of kids that enter every year? About a hundred. No kidding. Hey, maybe we'll have to go grab some lunch to celebrate. Lauderdale smiled pleasantly and looked back over at me. He's definitely earned it, he said, leaning down to shake my hand. Freddy, make sure your dad pays, all right? I smiled and sheepishly looked down while my dad burst into laughter at Lauderdale's joke. They shook hands again in a warm, vigorous exchange of alpha energy, and if I didn't know either of them, I might have assumed they were work buddies or fellow renegades. See you in class on Monday, Lauderdale waved as he started out of the atrium room. I'm excited to see what's next. Well, I suppose we better head out. You guys want to go get some drive through somewhere on the way back? Can we get Wendy's? Asked Patrick, lobbying early and ardently for his go-to. No surprise, given that a full third of his diet consisted of their french fries dipped in a small chocolate frosty. Sure, my dad relented, already ambling toward the hallway. Let's get moving. Hey, Dad, can I just look around for a couple more minutes? Sure, he repeated slightly softer while he nodded and looked me up and down. But just a couple of minutes, okay? I gotta get back and get to work. As I walked back over to my painting, I noticed the atrium room had emptied, and for the moment I was alone. I stood maybe a foot away from it, shifting my gaze from the rose to the can to the wallpaper and back to the rose again. While my eyes repeated this circulation over and over, the tension in my body eased and my arms unlocked. In a sudden swell of humming amplifier fuzz and filtered synthetic keys, the elements of the painting seemed to separate and float, allowing me to see past them into the original pink of the very first wash. The flat space widened and swallowed me as I closed my eyes and a kick drum sounded, while cold piano and bottomless bass wove a new collage from the dismantled reds and oranges, remnants of the summer, almost gone like my family, and specific details of the girls I had been sure of just yesterday, now translucent and bleeding into one another like whispery coils of shifting pigment a final pulsing of distant stars blinking out beneath my brother's smile and the receding darkness of my father's long shadow, all reverberating in feedback and watery stripes of midnight blue. And behind this fragile fabric, white paper, my mother holding and fastening, fixing and binding, all to keep the sun up and my drawing hand steady. Man up! 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 Man up!
That's where the music comes from. That's where the music comes from. What in particular about that time and place, if you don't mind me asking, what was happening in Summerfall, as you call it, in 1987 that makes that the place you return to? Um, it's a, uh, well, it's a sort of a long involved story. I don't know if it's really all that interesting to get into, honestly. Well, there has to be something significant about that time. How old were you? You must have been 13. I was 13, you know, and I just feel like everything that ever fueled anything that came after that happened in those two weeks, right around the end of that summer. What did happen? I turned 13 and I started seventh grade. I had my first kiss. My brother and I wrote our first song. My parents split up and my dad moved out. And for the first time, I thought, well, maybe my job is to take everything I'm feeling about all of this and pour it out on paper or put it out into the air. So I think that's really when I first started thinking of myself as an artist. And whenever I go back there, the music just comes. It just comes. Is it ever painful to go back? Sometimes. And sometimes it's almost unbearably sweet. But I go back to that time and my ears are young and sympathetic. And my eyes are wide and bright. And my heart is open and it's very easy to walk back down into that river of longing and loss and sound and color. And I only have to wash myself in it for a few minutes. And I return unblemished and carrying something new. That's the best I can describe it for you. Well, I think I'm speaking for a lot of people when I say I'm glad you're able to go there and come back with such wonderful stuff. I hope there's much more waiting there for you because I want to hear more, as I'm sure we all do. Thank you, Reg. That means so much. I really appreciate it. You're most welcome. And right now, I'd love to give our listeners a taste of the new music, which I'm assuming, at least some of which, comes from that place. The sounds are brand new, but they will feel like you've heard them before. From the album Lonely Boy by Frederick Julius, whom we've been getting to know over the last hour, if you have heartstrings, this one will tug at them a bit. Here is The Architect, and all you've got to do is lean your ears in and listen. I wore flannel shirts for my father Thought they'd make me be like him Even though I didn't want to of the 
This episode of Lonely Boy is brought to you by Sick Picnic Media. To us, you're not just a listener. You're part of this journey now, too. For exclusive updates, sneak peeks, and maybe even a free track or two, hit subscribe, follow Frederick Julius on Facebook, or sign up for our email list. Don't forget, we release new episodes on all your favorite podcast platforms every Friday. Until next time, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, it's always a good time to imagine anything. Peace and much love. Please note, Lonely Boy is a work of fiction. Names, characters, businesses, places, events, locales, and incidents are either the products of the author's imagination or used in a fictitious manner. Any resemblance to actual persons, living or dead, or actual events is purely coincidental. Copyright 2023, Sick Picnic Media. All rights reserved, including the right to reproduce, distribute, or transmit in any form or by any means. For information regarding subsidiary rights, please contact Sick Picnic Media.